Hello and welcome to Eating Between the Lines. I am your host, Therese Martinez, and I am so happy to have you here. If you want to untangle yourself from diet culture conditioning and get appropriate, actionable options to nourish your unique life and body, I'm going to dive deep into the nuanced spectrum of health to help you figure out what to prioritize in your journey without getting trapped in the extreme ideology of health optimization or total complacency. I am here to help you apply the science effectively, not rigidly, and get you feeling better in your body and mind. Here is how to eat between the lines. Hello, hello. Welcome back, everyone. Very excited for today's guest. We've got Ahuva Hirschkopf. She is a Toronto-based anti-diet dietitian and burnout coach for professional women. In her one-on-one group coaching and corporate partnerships, she supports professional women and the organizations they support in stepping out of the working mom hustle culture that leads so many women to burnout so they can start enjoying their days again and making their goals a reality without losing themselves or compromising on their professional aspirations in the process. Very excited to have you here, Ahuva, um, calling from Canada. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how are you doing? Good. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So good to have you. I, yeah, as we were just kind of talking about, I um, was really excited when we connected to dive in a little bit more to how, you know, you help these women to better improve all of the burnout that is so, so common in our society and culture these days. And also tackling this with an angle of anti-diet, you know, very, very passionate angle for my own self as a dietitian to make sure that we're meeting people where they're at. And um, I'm just, yeah, really excited to dive in here. There, I think there's so much to cover and um, let's get rolling. So what, what is it that you actually do with your um, business? Like who do you help? Who comes to you? What's this look like and how? Absolutely. In my nutrition practice, uh, you know, I'm a pediatric dietitian. I help support families who want to raise intuitive eaters. And in my coaching, you know, sort of prong of my practice, I work with professional women who are kind of like trying to do it all. And they're like, the only advice I'm getting is don't do it all, but I kind of want to do the things that I'm doing. I don't want to stop working and showing up for my family and taking care of myself and all of those things. But I also want to not feel like a dish rag at the end of every single day. And I help Mm -hmm. them to do that. Gotcha. That's interesting because that is, um, I see that so much too, where it's like, there's this pushback on kind of the, the level of accomplishment that women, some women are trying to attain by being the mom, being the, the, um, being the professional and doing it all. And so you're kind of saying that, Hey, you're again, meeting them where they're at with an attempt to still be able to do the things that they want to do without getting this burnout. How does that work? Like how, how do you attempt to tackle that with folks? So, I mean, number one is like, as you said, you know, doing the things they want to do is one of the first things we do is actually clarify what those things are. 
right? Mm. Because I think that we have, as, as women, very often we confuse the words I want with I should want, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. should want to work out every day and I should want to clean my house and I should want to make a home cooked meal for my kids and I should want to be able to be a great daughter-in-law and I should want to be able to mm. have kids one day, right? So we very often just swap out these two words. Like, do you think that you, again, like should want to work out every day or do you actually want to do that? Right. Do you think that you should want to make a home cooked meal for your kids every night? Or is that just something that you actually like feel passionate about wanting to do? You enjoy being in the kitchen. You, you know, really enjoy being able to sit over a meal that you've made and really clarifying for people like, what is it? Is it a should want or a want? Because very often we have this goal as women of like doing it all. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know what that means to us. We will have a goal of, I want to have it all. Right. And what does have it all mean? And sometimes that means, you know, what are you willing to give up in order to have it all? So they have your definition, but we just use the, I want to have it all as like, I've, I've looked at Instagram and seen a million different women doing a million different things. And I guess that's the definition I'm supposed to want to have. So I guess that's the one that I do. Hmm. So it's kind of like a reframing in a way, but also, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, maybe clients I've had, or even like friends, family, peers, like where they want to want to do things too. Right. So how does that, like, maybe they, they encounter this roadblock of, okay, yeah, I don't actually want to work out, but I do maybe want to be a healthier individual. Like, what is it? How do you navigate the, the, like, maybe it's like an identity component where trying to shift certain behaviors where they, they don't naturally want to do them, but overall they're trying to get to a different point of like accomplishment and identity. And that's where the motive comes from or how does that work? Totally. totally. Okay. So I have like seven things that I want to say about this. Okay. <laughs> Number one is there's one strategy that I tell my clients to use all the time, which is it's called my what, why, what strategy. And you can essentially implement it for anything. Sometimes, you know, I talk to clients who feel like they have zero time. And the way that we use it is identifying what we're doing, right? Why we're doing it and what we get out of those things. But when we want to do something, it can be as simple as identifying, like, what is it that you want to do, right? And the example that I give is running. Let's say I'm a runner. I enjoy running. You know, sometimes I see people who are like, me too. And sometimes people are like, why would you run? Is there someone chasing you? Mm -hmm. But I love doing that, right? And also I've had, I've delivered twins. I have six-year-old twins. So I had a high-risk pregnancy. I was pregnant during COVID when there was, you know, minimal opportunity for me to get outside on my own, um, you know, without two kids in tow while being pregnant. And so the what is like, I want to run. I want to run three times a week. I want to, I don't know like, you know, read a book a week, whatever it is, being really clear on why you want to do that. And I often, you know, tell people to answer the question twice, because sometimes it'll be like, why do you run a run? And it's like, because it's good for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And the second question is, okay, if there was a truer answer to that question, why do you want to do it? Right. Mm-hmm. And for me, genuinely, I, my answer would be because it's something that I enjoy because it's, time that I, you know, get away from everybody else and I get to clear my head. For some people, it might be, I don't know, because someone who once when I was steeped in diet culture was like, that's a great way to change your body, right? Mm-hmm. Getting really clear on that why 
And then we go to the second what question, which is just, what do you get out of that? Right? So what do I get out of having some time away? What do I get out of some physical activity? I feel mentally better. I feel physically better. I feel all the things, right? And understanding what you're getting out of that that specific activity or that specific thing you want to do makes it so much easier to become creative with other ways that you can do that. Mm -hmm. Right. So the example is, you know, during, during COVID again, I had two little kids who I was watching all day during that time I was pregnant. There's a ski hill next to our house. And I used to walk with my kids up and down the ski hill for Mm -hmm. that same, get outside, get some physical Mm -hmm. activity, get like all of, you know, all of that stuff but I don't have to feel guilty that I'm not exactly running. I can be like, oh, I'm doing this other thing to give me all of those outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. And so if there is something that you want to want to do, getting really clear on the why you want to do it and what you're getting out of it makes it easier to then do what I call, which is setting the smallest achievable goal. Yeah. And one of the examples that I love of that is in a book, um, Atomic Habits by James Clear, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, like you, like one of my favorite things is he talks about the person who wants to shift that identity to be someone who goes to the gym every day, right? Mm-hmm. And they drive to the gym, park outside, and then turn around and go home. Mm-hmm. And you might be like, "That's so dumb. They didn't do anything. They didn't raise their heart rate. They didn't." And that's true. There's no physical benefits to driving to the gym and driving home, but there's an identity benefit, right? You can pick the smallest thing that allows you to start shifting into the identity of somebody who does this. Mm-hmm. I'm the, I have the identity of someone who, you know, regularly um, does some physical activity or the identity of someone who reads a book once a week or yeah. who's making progress on a business they're building. And we take it into being really hyper clear on what we're getting out of that thing. And then the simplest way that we can get it, it makes it so much more achievable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too. It's kind of like low hanging fruit, right? But then also this concept of acting as if, and I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on this, because I've gone back and forth a little bit with um, how much I want to shift my mindset first and how much I just start doing the thing first and hope that the mindset catches up. Do you have any thoughts with that? Because I mean, the James Clear example is kind of just like an acting as if situation, right? But I also see so many obstacles and issues with that because if the headspace isn't truly motivated and or like grasping the purpose necessarily, I think that that would be a challenging habit to then continue out to play out to eventually be going into the gym and those kinds of things. Um, thereafter. So what are your thoughts on kind of mindset shift and behavioral shifts? And if there is kind of a one or the other works best or situational? It's a great question. Um, And especially because a lot of the clients that I work with are high achieving perfectionists, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like hands up if you're in the room, I don't know, just -hmm. just me Um, is that, you know, often when we go to that smallest goal, when we're perfectionists, you know, I describe perfectionism as standing at the at the starting point of a marathon, trying and decoding and like calculating and thinking about and stressing about how you can take the entire marathon in one step, mm-hmm. right? Instead of just taking that first step. And so completely, I think sometimes when we say just shift into the identity and it will become easier, like that's a cop out because yeah. for sure there's there's that mindset piece and there's the action piece. 
And I think that they have to complement each other. And that's Mm -hmm. why sometimes, you know, being like, whether it's, you know, you have a health goal or you have a goal of shifting your relationship with food and it's, you know, working with a dietitian or how I work with women in my coaching practice is we, we give ourselves, like, I have a gold star um, calendar that all of my adult clients, like women who are, you know, business owners and excellent at what they do and high powered professionals who literally give themselves gold stars every day. Because when you do that tiny little activity, when you do that smallest achievable goal, and then you spend the rest of your day being like, oh, that's so dumb. It didn't even matter. Like, so stupid. It's so small. It's da, da, da. It's so demotivating. Like, you're not going to show back up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Again, whether it's a physical activity thing or like, you know, you want to work on your business, like, you're not going to do it. And so I think that it has to come at the same time of, working on that mindset piece of like, no, this is a step in the direction. And believe me, I know how painful it is. Like personally, I can, I can attest to how painful it is to start something and be like, okay, cool. This is literally the tiniest drop in a bucket step that I'm taking towards this massive goal that I have Mm -hmm. and having somebody in your corner also, or having those skills to be able to pat yourself on the back and be like, but I took the step. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So hard. So hard. I mean, see that all the time in, in what we do as dietitians and otherwise, where it's like sustainable change is not immediate, you know, gratification in certain situations, right? So finding the low-hanging fruit, finding those wins, those the the little bit that can give you the traction is so, so important. Um, in order to kind of continue the compound effect, right. To, to get down, down the line to, to something more um, in the bigger scheme of your goals. So um, you brought up perfectionism. I kind of want to break this down a little bit more. What, um, you know, if you're working with women that are professionals and or mothers and that have a perfectionistic tendencies, what does this look like? Like if people were kind of wondering, honestly, if they are perfectionists, how would this manifest in their life in classic ways and maybe not so classic ways? Yeah. It's a great question because I think that people sometimes think about perfectionism as like, I had all of my notes color coded in university and like, Mm -hmm. that's just me being a perfectionist. And I had every single note printed out twice. Right. And that's fine. And that truly, yes, that is the perfectionism that we sort of know. And that's really why so many of us wear it like a badge of honor, because we're like, what do you mean? I'm just hyper-organized. I just have a color coded, you know, system in my calendar for all of my kids' doctor's appointments. Yes, totally. But the part that we don't talk about about the perfectionism is you know, the person who's been sitting there like having a business idea for years and has never actually taken that first step because they're like, you know, I need everything, all the stars to align in order for that to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the person who's never taken the dance class that they've wanted to for 10 years because they're like, that would be a great way to blow off steam. But they're so afraid of being a beginner. They're so afraid of walking into a room, whether it's, uh, you know, a university class or whether it's a dance class, like something that they really would enjoy, but they're holding themselves back from having that enjoyment because they're like, I'm not a beginner and I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to mm. be a beginner. Mm. It's the person. And I know that, you know, we talk and you talk a lot about um, like diet culture, but it's the person who's steeped in diet culture because they're like, 
no, there, I know that there is a right way to eat that will have my body looking completely right, whatever that means, because mm-hmm. you, know, you know that it changes by the decade. And so I'm going to ignore all of my hunger and fullness cues and all the things that I actually enjoy because there's a right way to do this and I have to find it. Mm-hmm. Right. And like diet culture is, there's so much perfectionism associated with it and so much there's going to be a great life for you on the other side of this one thing. You just have to get it right. right? Mm-hmm. And think about how demotivating that is. I mean, like we know how often people start and stop diets when they're, you know, when they're steeped in that, because it's like every, uh, you know, special K commercial. It's like you see the person sad and then you see them having started the special K diet and eating two bowls of special K a day. And then suddenly a week later, they're like, my life is perfect. I don't get in a fight with my boyfriend anymore. Like everything is amazing and sunshine and rainbows and birds come and help me get dressed in the morning. Mm-hmm. Right. It, and that's yeah. the promise. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, I'm just in my own mind right now relating to this in, in many ways <laughs> with like, it's kind of a, a combination of this fear of getting outside of your comfort zone as yeah. well, but like um, in a fashion that essentially, let's see here, would it's getting out of your comfort zone in a way that like, isn't just like a fear of getting out of your comfort zone. I'm trying to figure out a better way to articulate this. I think yeah. that, cause I think that there are some people that are not perfectionists that still struggle with getting outside of their comfort zone to a certain degree, unless that would be debatable to you as well. Um, where there is just an element to that in many people that just have a harder time getting outside of their I comfort zone. I think that zone. everybody has, has a fear of getting out of their comfort zone. Yeah. Like all of us are like, we know, and like remembering that's biological, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like going into a new place, you have to all of a sudden be hyper aware. There might be dangers there. Like there might be a lion coming to attack you. So obviously, you know, that makes perfect sense. Right. But what I really think about perfectionism is and the way that I think about it differently is in that women have never been taught historically how to have their own backs through failure. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this this is where we see so many of the parallels as well between diet culture and this burnout and the perfectionism mm-hmm. is, you know, the way that so many of us were taught in the 80s and 90s of like if somebody has a problem with your body, if you're being bullied, if somebody doesn't, if somebody disapproves, right? Instead of being like, let's talk about why that is and maybe set some boundaries with that person and respect your body. We're like, oh, so just lose weight. Like just fix the problem, Mm -hmm. right? Just like make the other person happy. Just like achieve the goal and Mm. then we can get rid of the negative feelings. And we've Mm. never been taught the skills of having our own backs through failure. Mm -hmm. And failure can mean lots of different things. If you're running a business, it can mean, you know, you had a launch that didn't exactly go how you wanted. It can be going to, you know, your in-laws house for Thanksgiving and then making a diet culture like, you know, comment Mm -hmm. again. There's lots of different ways but we've never taught women how to have their own backs through failure, through something that doesn't go their way. And so when we don't have that skill, the best thing that we can do is put on a coat of armor, right? If we don't know how to defend ourselves against potential danger, wear a full suit of armor. Just be as perfect as humanly possible. And hopefully you can avoid any failure that might make you feel uncomfortable feelings or have you having to deal with somebody else feeling uncomfortable feelings. Mm -hmm. And so when we realize that it's a coping mechanism, we can then actually do something about it instead of just either wearing it like a badge of honor or feeling guilty and feeling like there's something wrong with you because you get in a fight with your husband every time he loads a dishwasher wrong. Right, right. 
Oh man, that is so interesting. Um, so in regards to like, like how to approach this for folks that may be listening to this at this point, what is, what are like, first you kind of identify it, right? So having the mindfulness around your reactivity or tendencies, habits, like, um, that occurred naturally, I think that's a whole different kind of skill to develop, but say that a person can start to develop that becomes a little bit more aware of their own, um, habits and tendencies. What's the next thing to do? So exactly as you said, like the first one is always getting very clear as like on, on the, like what's happening, Mm -hmm. right? Like, why am I doing this? Instead of just going into, I call it shifting from condemnation to curiosity because normally, especially with the perfectionism, we're like, oh, so dumb. I did that again, right? Like, oh my God, I know now. And if you are, if you're someone who identifies as a perfectionist, don't perfectionism this change. It doesn't mean that some, that as soon as you become aware of the thing that you're doing, you all of a sudden have to do better immediately, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, especially for people who sometimes come to intuitive eating or come to uh, anti-diet work, they're like, oh, I need to change my relationship with food immediately. Mm-hmm. It should be perfect tomorrow. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's still a process for me. And I'm a dietitian who does that work also, right? Yeah. Um, and so just starting to recognize and get really curious because we also forget sometimes as humans that we learn retrospectively so much better than we learn prospectively. And sometimes that means making the same mistake, responding the same way, procrastinating the way that you always have and, you know, allowing sort of your perfectionism to do what it does. And then being like, huh, that's curious. I wonder why I did that again. Right. And exploring it in retrospect instead of trying to change it prospectively, because that often doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Like in the moment when your body wants to respond the same way and your nervous system is on fire and everything is still happening, you're likely not going to have the mental space to be like, let's just pause and deal with this, you know, deal with this differently. Mm-hmm. You notice in retrospect and only then can you start recognizing like, oh, I actually want to learn differently. I want to act differently in this time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like, I want to act differently in this time. Okay. I'm committed to doing it. And then you do the exact same old thing again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And only then once you get to that point, can we change it on purpose and actually act differently? Totally. So recognizing that it's totally a process and we act, we need to let that process unfold as it needs to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, it reminds me a little bit of um, I mean, mindfulness as an umbrella and I'm kind of relating it to my own personal experience with meditation and techniques that I've learned through. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of Headspace the meditation app. Yeah. So they yeah. do like, so it's kind of like, it's, a, I also have like other parallels with skills with dialectic behavioral therapy, where it's like, they, they teach in DBT, you know, distress um, tolerance. And so being in a yeah. situation where you're, you're reactive, you're kind of acting impulsively, you are overthinking a situation, whatever it is, right. It's basically not, not being super connected to the situation and just kind of doing what you're used to doing all the time. Right. And then applying, applying mindfulness around it helps you take a step back and act differently, but you can't just do that. Right. It's like, you, it's a skill that has to be developed. And a lot of times through, um, meditation, like, it's kind of like what you're talking about with a reflective component, you know, looking back retrospectively being like, okay, I acted a little bit X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, how might I be able to prevent or shift that behavior next time around going through something like meditation? Um, it creates skills that you can then apply 
not in that moment, but later down the line, but it takes practice. And again, it just takes awareness to intervene in the first place. And so, um, yeah. So is that something that you do with clients? Like that you, it's like develop that skill set. So we actually, uh, typically, you know, inside the unapologetic living code, which is the, the, the 12 week program I was mentioning, start with a 30 second pause, both for just like starting to respond to things and also for getting into that reflective space, right? Because normally the women that I'm working with are like so steeped in the hustle culture that it's like, mm-hmm. if you, if you stop doing anything and you're not being productive, then like all hell is going to break loose. Right. And sometimes even the 30 second pause whether it's, you know, sitting on the couch and not doing anything or just like putting down your phone is where we start for that reflective, for that reflective opportunity mm-hmm. of just like, oh, here's who I am. We number one shift it to, again, like building in that identity of someone who, who takes that time, who values reflective time, number one. And number two, um, it's actually the time that we've seen where our brains can go a little bit, you know, like, why are you not? why are you not standing up? Why are you not being productive? And that's discomfort. Like there's discomfort with that, Mm -hmm. but it's not unmanageable. Right. Mm -hmm. And then really building in some of those meditation practices and that opportunity to really um, build again, like with that reflective time and also deal with the discomfort that comes up with so many women who are high achievers and like, go, go, go and sitting down and meditating where your body Mm -hmm. is like, why are you doing this? And why are you not being productive right now mm-hmm. over and over and like dealing and learning how to separate your brain and what it says to you from what you actually want to believe. Mm. Gosh. And it just, um, I mean, hearing you talk about it, I can even feel myself get a little like anxious, remembering kind of how I was at one point. I again, yeah. have feel a, a little better, still things to work on, but like sitting down to not do anything is extremely stressful <laughs> for, yeah. um, and it was, well, at least it was at my, some one point in my, in my life. And I imagine like I had, I do not have children and I do not like, I consider my life to be pretty, um, you know, I create my own demands, you know, and it, it alleviates a lot of responsibility in that regard. And so for women that are trying to, or folks that are just trying to, do all of the things sitting down and trying to like meditate or think and reflect like it is that is the hardest hardest task for like for them to to do so how do they even get into like is it just kind of an encouraged part of the practice like is it just something yeah yeah. Number one, it's an encouraged, um, it's an encouraged part of the practice. And we do that, like starting with the 30 seconds and the second part and the second trick that I teach my clients all the time is being able to build the capacity to say, oh, this is the part where my brain is going to, mm. right. Because sometimes we take like our brain freaking out and being like, you should stand up. And you're like, yeah, I guess that checks out. I should go do something. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the only way, again, the same way that we think the only way to stop bullying or the only way that we th- like to stop our mother-in-law's diet culture comments is just to lose weight. We're like the only way to make our brain stop telling us to do something is to do something. Mm-hmm. Right. And often what we really need to do is be able to say, oh, right. This is the part where my brain freaks out. Mm-hmm. This is the part where my brain tells me to do something. And it works because number one, when we just acknowledge it, when we're like, nothing has gone wrong, this is just a normal part of the day. Like if we were driving 
and all of a sudden there was a red light, we wouldn't totally flip out. We'd be like, oh, right, this is the part where the lights change, Mm -hmm. right? Like that just Mm -hmm. checks out. And it takes that pressure and anxiety sometimes off that situation. Like this isn't a crisis that your brain is telling you that you have to move. It's just what your brain does when you sit, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's like when, you know, if my, like I do, I have three kids who are six and under. When my kids cry because I, like my two and a half year olds, God bless him, is the most stubborn child I've ever met in my life. (laughs) If I say, you know, it's not TV time, he's going to have a response. If I freaked out every time as though that was a new response, that would be incredibly stressful. I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, right. This is the part where he doesn't like that I'm saying no to him turning on the TV, right? Mm -hmm. And that might be, it's still not enjoyable. I can say, like I said, I'd rather him not have that response, Mm -hmm. but it's a a whole different level of stress when you can say like, this is just a normal part where this happens. Yeah. Again, like you don't have to freak out. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. I love that awareness. It's got to be hard to working with folks that I imagine combat you a lot when it comes to like slowing down, taking time um, to do more reflection to honestly not, you know, do much, right? Because they they probably feel like they have a very justified laundry list of items and things to accomplish. How do you kind of hone in on priorities or talk to people about like stepping back from all of the to do's when it feels like it's still like, it's so important to them to keep checking things off. One of the first things that we do is really get clear on people's values. Mm. Right. Um, I call it value-guided decision-making before you can make any decisions, before you decide what to do, getting really clear on your values. Because for sure, I think that when we're in the hustle culture, which all of us are, right, it's it's the, like, water we drink, just doing something is a value. Like, that's, that's what we've always been told. It's like just being active, right? And again, like, mm-hmm. my apologies to people who listen, but because I run, I, you know, a lot yeah. of my analogies come to me on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, in the winter, I run on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly, like, if you gave me a choice between running outside and, and running on the treadmill, I'd pick outside 100% of the time, right? Yeah. Running on the treadmill only serves the purpose of, of I want to I want to do the act of moving and that's it. But if I had somewhere that I wanted to go, I could run on the treadmill for seven days straight and not get there, right? Mm-hmm. It's only because running is the end goal. If I'm moving towards something else, running is kind of, like on the treadmill is kind of useless. And when we take a step back and we really clarify our values, we're like, here's where we want to go. Here are the things that we want to do. I, you know, we, we spend a whole week on this inside the program that I run. It becomes really clear what we can knock off our to-do list, right? Mm-hmm. Because does it meet your values or does it not? If it's like, I am picking up someone at 3 a.m. right from the airport. If I, like, if that's, a person who otherwise has no way home and it's like literally impossible. They somehow don't have a cell phone and they don't have Uber and they're like, okay, that might meet my values of like going out of my way to help someone who is experiencing misfortune. Right. Mm -hmm. But if it's just somebody who like has a million other ways home and it's going to ruin my entire next day and I'm not going to be able to function for my kids, does it really meet the values that I have Mm -hmm. of showing up as a great coach, showing up for me, showing up for my family, like showing up for my kids. Right. 
-hmm. And every decision on how we do or don't spend our time becomes infinitely easier. And by easier, I don't mean it feels easier in your body because women always have, you know, challenges saying no. Mm -hmm. We we know that saying no is not the easiest thing, Mm -hmm. but becomes so much clearer when you're really clear on your values and where you're going. Because you wouldn't just take random turns. Like if the GPS, if you plugged it into the GPS and it was giving you directions to where you needed to go, you wouldn't be like, I'm just going to actually like take a left here, right? We don't Mm -hmm. do that with anything else. And so we first need to set almost our like value guided GPS system and then deciding which turn to take, it becomes really easy. Oh, I love that value guided GPS system. That's awesome. Although that does remind me of that episode of the office where did you ever watch the office? Yeah. With, <laughs> with, yeah. Michael was like turning and Dwight was like, no, no, not yet. Not yet. He's like, it said a turn. Um, <laughs> in any case, got to be aware of that. Okay, in that case, don't yeah. listen to the GPS. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> or at least like look at the map a little bit to see if you have a little further to go before yes. you turn. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Oh, I love that though. Value got a GPS. Um, something you had mentioned earlier that I wanted to touch back on and you kind of, you kind of, uh, touched it again just now, but I imagine so much of this process is getting more comfortable with other people being uncomfortable with what you are uh-huh. doing. And I think that that is so important. I mean, I see that a lot, even just, um, you know, diet culture, wellness culture, body, like body image, like so much of the desire to manipulate our bodies is to please other people. Right. Yeah. Like, like there's, it can be argued or debatable that, you know, you want to feel good and feel confident, but a lot of times the confidence is because we have been told this is what will look good, right? This is what other, how other people will be receptive to you and what you look like. And, um, I was talking actually with my sisters recently about this as well, where just having like accepting that you cannot control someone else's emotions and that they are responsible for their own responses is very challenging sometimes. Like, even when you say that, even like, you know, with with me doing this work, I'm like, what do you mean? I can make everyone happy. Right. Like (laughs) Uh (laughs) there's still that part of your brain that is like, don't Mm -hmm. tell me that. I don't want to believe that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's so true though. It's so true. Like there is this inherent desire to like, please people for so many folks. And I would imagine I'd see this a lot with perfectionists. Um, and otherwise though, you know, um, how, like, how is that tackled? Do you guys talk a lot about that in your programs and what, what advice would you kind of give to folks to, to pull back the, um, I don't know, the curtain and be, be a little bit more comfortable with, with having people be uncomfortable. It's so crazy. I mean, even in like relationships, like, you know, even just having someone be like, Oh, you, you don't want to have Thai for dinner. It's like, okay, never mind. I can have Thai. I can have Thai, you know, that's totally fine. Or whatever it is and whatever microcosm or macro it's going to be. It's like, you, I see this, I run into this every single day for my own self. And I feel like I'm a pretty self-aware person too. And so How does this translate as well? You know, number one, it's so funny because I think about, you know, when I was pregnant with my twins, so now like six and a half years ago, there was like one night where I went into to my husband and I was like, hey, like, do you want some ice cream? And he was like, like, or do you want to go for ice cream? And he was like, not like particularly, like I'm kind of good right now. Mm-hmm. And I like left the room. And I was like, and I, I remember coming back like 20 minutes later and like, be like being like bawling, like you're a horrible 
and you won't even take your pregnant wife for ice cream. And I, or I walked in like ice cream in hand. We like had ice cream in the freezer and he was like, of course, what are you talking about? Like you asked me if, if you, I wanted to go and I didn't want to go, but like if you wanted to go, I obviously would have gone with you. And I was like, you, I was like shoveling, you know, crying uh-huh. between bites uh-huh. of ice cream being like, too late now. Uh-huh. So yes, I totally hear you on, you know, sometimes like we do those things. We like hint to somebody else. Like, do you mm-hmm. want ice cream? Because secretly mm-hmm. I want ice cream, but I don't want to tell, say that I want ice cream only if you want ice cream, like all of those kind of things. So for mm-hmm. sure, it's not easy. Um, And number one is, really being able to like start clarifying like what kind of relationship you're in. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that again, it goes like, it goes back to the diet culture examples also. Like sometimes some people are not going to get it right. When you start killing your relationship with food, like they're, Mm -hmm. you're not going to bring everyone along for the ride. Um, But really starting to number one, like be gentle with yourself on like where you're going to start setting boundaries and where you're not. And also it comes back to, you know, that value guided piece of it, which is like, sometimes when people are saying no to people, right, we get very caught up in the moment of what we're doing. So, you know, if somebody asks you to pick them up at 3am or like go out till 4am, right? Like I'm normally a person who's asleep by like 10. Mm. If somebody asks me to go out till four in the morning, nobody I know would ever do that. But in theory, hypothetically, right? We can, it can feel really big to disappoint someone. Saying no is super hard for a lot of women, like rightfully so, totally get it. And what I always encourage people to do is think of three other places they're saying yes for every boundary they set or every no Mm. that they say. Because we get really caught up in the moment of like, I can't deal with the discomfort of saying no right now. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, if I went out at four in the morning, I'd be be saying no to myself tomorrow because I'd probably be too, too exhausted to you know, take care of myself, do the things that I need to do. I'd be saying no to my kids because I'm not going to be the kind of mother that I want to be. I'm saying no to my clients because I'm not going to show up for them the way that I do when I've taken care of myself and I have a full night's rest and I'm, you know, mm-hmm. like doing well. And so when you become really clear on the fact that life doesn't happen in a vacuum, it's not like I said yes to this today and it's not going to impact anything else. And does that fall in line with the values I want to hold? it becomes a lot easier to do that. And by easier, I mean, again, like very clear. Mm-hmm. And then making sure that you take care of yourself afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like if you know that saying no to somebody is going to agitate your nervous system, right? Like in my program, people come into to the, the Facebook group that we have all the time or bring it to coaching and be like, oh, I just did this and now I'm freaking out. And did it come in for support? right? Whether that's being in a program like mine where you get that support or being able to just be like, I'm probably not going to emotionally be able to do anything for the rest of the day because my nervous system is is like going to be so on fire that like, I'm going to be done if I say no to this person. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and like really just recognizing that and knowing that about yourself, not expecting yourself to be able to do it and just have no response. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it just, it honestly, it just feels like exhausting <laughs> to like, you know, to, to also be developing the skills and like have the awareness and have the, you know, constant, like, um, I don't know, curiosity, I suppose too. It sounds exhausting and also so, so like obviously beneficial too, but, um, but it's like, as I'm thinking about 
the taxing nature on a day-to-day -day basis, like if it, cause you see it, like you might say, have a hard time saying no to someone in the grocery store trying to get like a little bit ahead of you in line or like saying no to, I don't, I don't know, even in traffic or something like that. Like certain things where it's like just not letting people deal with their own reactions. So it yeah. just keeps piling on you. And then, so there's constantly all of these like, um, times where you have, you're just saying, yes, 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 yes. And then all of yeah. a sudden there's like a big no that eventually comes. And usually it's in a, a like, not a great form of, you know, maybe interacting with someone that was like kind of distanced from most of the yeses anyways, or maybe yeah. it is direct. I don't know. But, um, I imagine like just being busy professional individuals, um, having th that bound those boundaries has like got to be so imperative to actually avoiding burnout kind of like yeah. what you talk about yeah and that's why you know it does take effort like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna lie it's it, it's not something that we've practiced before and so it's like learning any new skill there is a bit of a learning mm -hmm. curve at the beginning right and also you know, my clients will come in all the time and be like, this literally saved me hours today because someone asked me for something and it would have taken six hours of my time. And I was like, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. Right. Like I had, you know, a client last, last week, I think who was giving a presentation at work. And she was like, I didn't spend the extra 12 hours that I didn't need reviewing the, the presentation that I had already perfected. Like, right. So it does for sure. There's a learning curve and it saves hours and you know days and weeks there was it was funny um there was a a meme that like went on you know it was on Instagram like uh -huh. the other the other day or something that was like people who leave parties like without stressing about like did I say goodbye to everyone and did I this and it saves two hours to save two days a year and I was like yeah like you legitimately wow. do right? and I'm like I showed this to my husband because he like never leaves party you know he, he's like I'm gonna start saying goodbye and I'm like so we're leaving in four hours uh -huh. and I'm like I'm like goodbye everyone and I just like walk out the door yeah and and but it is like it's it's days and it's weeks that we're saving not spiraling in overwhelm when when it's not even you know we want to say no and then we stress for hours about should we say yes or should we say no and then eventually we say yes anyway and then we have to spend the time doing it right mm -hmm. all of that time is saved yeah yeah oh that's a yeah really good points it makes so much sense I've always been someone that tries to sneak out anyways but mostly mm -hmm. that's just mm -hmm. like that's just like avoiding the yeah kind of like the time and the hugs and like the, yeah it's like I don't know, but and the getting involved in other conversations. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um the uh your your work as a pediatric dietitian. Um yeah. and how that's kind of uh like evolved, I suppose, but I mostly just more so just getting into your own approach. I feel like kids are a whole other level for me. Yeah. It's like, I do not, I, I have things. You either love them or you're like, please yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. And I, it's, it's usually the, like, I just don't really understand how to like interact. And so, especially I work with a lot of moms. And so, um, trying to, uh, educate around, you know, how to raise healthy individuals, have them develop a better relationship with food and all of that is so important to me and navigating the 
the intricacies of raising mm -hmm. children is something I do not have hands-on experience with, right? So it's like, if they are picky eaters, if they, um, you know, do not, like they only want to have dessert all the time, or like how if they push back so significantly every single time you're trying to sit down and eat, if they, you know, do all the different things, it's like, I have no idea how to even start to yeah. tackle that. What's, um, what, like, what would be some, I don't know about like tips, tricks, but I'm curious about your approach overall. And then maybe we'll get into some other details of, of, of things people can take away. Completely. So, I mean, I feed and, and, you know, recommend, um, or like to parents during my sessions a lot that falls in line with the division of responsibility, right. Being really clear on what our responsibilities are. And again, mm. treating feeding like any other relationship um and being really clear on that division of responsibility piece with also the nuance of like sometimes there's a little bit that's left out of that conversation right sometimes parents see things like just make a schedule and say no to your kids when they want a snack in between then and you're like that's great to see on a on an instagram you know little slide but also what do i do when my kid is screaming right how do i handle that and i think that it can almost be more challenging for people who have come to intuitive eating later in life, because the skills that we have to be intuitive eaters are not the same ones that we need to raise intuitive eaters. Mm. And sometimes there's a very big discomfort for people who are so used to intuitive eating and understanding things like why there being a meal and snack schedule for your kids is not restriction, right? How to bridge the gap for a lot of things like that, where you know, we might say to somebody, if you're hungry, then eat, even if it's not the quote unquote, a meal time. Right. Mm -hmm. And then for people, they're like, but why is that different for my child? Right. Why am I, why am I recommending to have a meal and snack schedule? And how does that teach them intuitive eating versus just being a restrictive practice? Mm -hmm. And how, how does it like what? Yeah. Like, so why would you, I, why would you have a, a schedule? Yeah. So the, the challenge is sometimes with we assume that people just know things inherently. And what that means is kids are naturally intuitive eaters. They're great at, at doing that if they're put in the situation and the appropriate environment to do that. But when we think about when we say things like follow your hunger and fullness cues, how do you do that? How do you know what those are? How do you understand? And by understand, I don't necessarily mean cognitively understand because obviously, you know, if I'm talking about a four-year-old, I'm not going to stand in front of them and be like, let me show you this graph that indicates hunger and fullness. Right, but right. In your body, how do you understand something like if we don't eat, there are natural consequences, right? Like it feels uncomfortable. Um, that is not necessarily a feeling that we want, right? If we fix the problem for them, and I don't mean this to sound, and this is, you know, why sometimes people are like, but I can't say no to my kids. If we, every single time, there's always food that's available to them. Imagine grazing the entire day. How do you know when you're hungry or when you're full? Mm -hmm. Right? You don't. You never get a chance to actually feel those feelings. And so before we can actually then allow kids to, um, to start like saying like, oh, these are my cues, we have to teach them what those are. Mm, right a baby exactly you even see this in in babies yes like you know infants for sure will feed all day every day i've had lots of kids who you know have nursed all day mm -hmm. every day but also eventually a lot of times there are these consolidated feeds right larger meals periods of being satisfied and then 
you know, wanting to then like breastfeed or bottle feed again. And so that's one of the ways in which we teach kids what those cues actually look like. And sometimes, mm-hmm. full disclosure, I do think that that some um, pediatric dietitians stick to that a little bit dogmatically. Like mm-hmm. there has to be room for, okay, but I don't want my kid screaming for three hours if that's the meal schedule that I've, you know, that I've set out. And that's where the nuance comes in for sure, because it's not mm-hmm. meant to be a restrictive practice, but it is, here's when you eat, we, you know, we need to be able to, to like, um, start training our bodies to, to be able to experience those cues before mm-hmm. we can then allow someone to listen to them. Hmm. What about folks that come in? Cause I, this sounds really great in theory, like when you're like raising kids from a very young age and you kind of have a little bit more of the control around it. I imagine when kiddos start to go to school and they start getting exposed to, you know, foods that are particularly hyper palatable and, or um, that might, and I, and if this is the case or if not, then please like elaborate for me. Um, I've just seen it with my own peers growing up and other like kiddos that I know too, um, where they will get somewhat hyper-focused and interested in these other foods and that are so very hyper palatable. And so putting any kind of restriction on these foods can then lead to potentially disordered eating down the line and, or put it on pedestals and then they just will forever want it. Like, Mm -hmm. um, there are so many clients I work with now that like, we talk about their childhood for like a good bulk of the sessions, trying to to untangle wiring that happened then. But as a parent, you see the intake and you want to promote healthy eating. Um, So how do you kind of navigate exposure and restriction and letting the the individual kind of do what they want? So I think that when one of the best ways that we can do that, number one, is taking away the, and you know, obviously this is an intuitive eating principle as well, but when we're raising kids is really being very aware of how we describe foods, right? So there's no good foods and bad foods and junk foods and healthy foods and any of those mm-hmm. kind of things. Like my son came home uh, the other day cause he's six, he's an SK and senior kindergarten. I think mm-hmm. we call it something different in Canada than you do, uh-huh. but the year before grade one, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he said something about like his healthy snacks. And I like looked at him and he goes, God, mommy, I know you say all food is healthy. I know the teacher <laughs> describes it as a healthy snack. Like he's like, I'm just saying what my teacher was saying, which yes. So really being able to have that conversation around like all foods are healthy. All foods play a role. They're all there because one of the things that, that parents sometimes struggle with is when we say in the division of responsibility, you're responsible for what food is, is served and your kids are responsible for what they eat, right? If we break mm-hmm. it down into like it's most basic form, you're responsible for what food is served means we can erase all of those caveats that we want to make and all of those explanations of like, no, you can't have another chocolate chip cookie because you already had chocolate cookie. And if I put this in your lunch, then I'm going to, mm-hmm. none of that is your job. You don't need to explain why or why not you're responsible for what is served. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I allow my kids every day to choose something they put in their lunch. Normally it is some of those fun, like more, you know, like foods that they want, Um, like the cookies or the cakes or the, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. I make sure that it's there. 
alongside everything else that they Mm -hmm. that also is in there like their main meal and their fruits their vegetables all of those things but it's taking away all of that necessary explanation that we feel compelled to give and again like this is something that crosses over so much with raising intuitive eaters and like boundary setting right Mm -hmm. you're setting a boundary you can just say no I'm not going to do that. And I was just talking to a client about this this week also, right? We don't need to say, because I'm not feeling well or I have an appointment during that time or I actually have some work to do. We don't have to start explaining. We can just set the boundary. And so it can just be like, this is going in your lunch or it's not without it being um, like, you know, an explanation around the hyper palatability of the Right, food. totally, yeah. And also recognizing like kids are going to see things and they're going to want them. Mm-hmm. that's just a fact like it's not a problem yeah right I hear one of my one of my best friends is she is a daughter in my kids class and the number of times that I have to text her and be like what was the brownie with the pink chocolate chips that you sent yesterday because now my daughter's asking for that thing she has to send me like her shopping list mm-hmm. with the things that she right because they do and that's normal like how many times have you sat in a restaurant and looked at a meal coming out and been like oh that looks good I should get that next time right mm-hmm. it's just it's a normal part of it and so I think that you know we we can say okay, maybe we can shift some of the foods we're serving at home if the kids are going to have more of the sweeter foods in their lunch. And that's not a problem. Like, again, mm-hmm. I think that there's so much work where sometimes parents feel people who are raising little humans or aunts, uncles, caregivers who are doing mm-hmm. this work and are also sometimes seeing other little humans who are so scared of anything that feels remotely like restriction. Mm-hmm. And I get it. And I have all of the empathy in the world for it. And largely it comes from just not understanding where, where the decisions fit into raising intuitive eaters, or if you're just crossing into the territory of just trying to restrict your kids, Mm -hmm. right? So sometimes me saying to my kids, like, oh, here's what's for dinner. And it doesn't include a dessert because, you know, like we're Jewish, we go to synagogue. Sometimes they've already had on a Saturday, they've had like seven lollipops and, you know, like Mm -hmm. 17 cookies Mm -hmm. already. I don't have to like qualify that, but I can choose to not serve them more sugar rich foods mm-hmm. and it doesn't fall into to restriction. And I can feel really good about that. But sometimes, you know, parents still, even in that instance will feel like, am I restricting if I'm still not offering? Right? Yeah. And so having the support, like working with someone like you working with a pediatric dietitian can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. And just being able to clarify that for your, for, you know, parents and for, for themselves. So you can yeah. feel really good about the decision you're making in the moment. Yeah, totally. I think that there's like, oh, it's just, it's just, I would imagine really hard to trust your kids. <laughs> you know, it's like, feels like such a, a desire to control, to prevent like any negative outcomes that they might have down the line. And so creating verbiage around food, like uh, in terms of like, cause I've heard, um, I've like seen, like I follow some, some pediatric dietitians on Instagram to, so that I can get, you know, some input too, and get some ideas for when I'm working with mamas, um, you know, they'll talk about like nutrients in a way that like this, these are foods that give you more energy or help your eyes or like something like that. But to me, when I hear that stuff, I'm like, I have adults that like, when I tell them really straight up positive effects of certain foods, they will still not be inclined to eat those foods because of it. And especially it seems like as a child, you don't really equate the 
the need for that. Um, Mm -hmm. And there might be different like pockets and ranges of ages where a person might be more or less receptive to that kind of education and and how it resonates. But is that something that you would recommend like, or like how to like explain different like types of foods and what they do for you or what's like the verbiage that is like commonly used? So number one, I think that it goes back to the fact that we as pediatric dietitians don't recommend like talking about health of foods, like what they can do for Mm. your body or nutrition information really before the age of 12. And you see in like so many first grade classes, they Uh want to talk about it and recognizing that generally anything like healthy, not healthy, that any of that stuff just goes back to good and bad. Like your kids Mm. just just distill it to Mm -hmm. it's good for me or it's bad for me. And that's it. Right. Mm. And past that age, then we can start introducing some things, but like, you know, talking about fiber and saying like, it's really good for your heart and it helps your, you're talking to a six-year-old about Mm -hmm. heart attack risk when you're 80. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. they think that 40 is a hundred. My kids think that I'm a hundred. Yeah. (laughs) And sometimes it can be exciting for, for like my six-year-olds will a hundred percent of the time, not a hundred percent of the time, very often ask me like, what do orange foods do? Mm -hmm. Right. Hmm. And they'll just say like, I'll tell you, they help your eyes. And sometimes I'm like, shoot, what do certain foods do? I'm like, I feel like I should know these things. <laughs> Damn it, you caught me off guard. Um, like, what do red foods do? And I'm like, that's great for your heart. What is mm-hmm. like, what is you know meat do for you? Helps mm-hmm. your helps your muscles. They think it's cool. I don't use it as a way of getting um, of encouraging them to eat them. Hmm. Um, it's not meant to be a way of encouraging your kids to eat them. And maybe that's the distinction, right? Yeah. It's not supposed to be like, eat this meat because it's good for your muscles. It's just, my kids are like, it's good for your bones. Like milk helps your bones. That's crazy. How does it do that? Right. Yeah. And just introducing that in the same way that, you know, when my kids ask me like, how are babies born? I would give them an, an age appropriate answer. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what do, and by the same token, my kids ask me all the time, you know, what does candy do for you? Like, what does this chocolate do for you? Right. Mm. And I'll say, number one, um, it gives you energy because sugar gives you energy. And number two, I'll just say, and also it gives you enjoyment. Like mm-hmm. also it tastes really good. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and also like in the same, you know, by the same token, introducing the concept that like, just because it tastes good is also good enough. Mm -hmm. right some foods Mm -hmm. like are powerhouses for your eyes and some are just really yummy and so we want to eat them and like Mm -hmm. that's a good enough reason also yeah I love it I love it oh man okay well wrapping up here this has been such a delightful conversation is there anything that you would like to add I definitely want to hear where people can find you um, anything else though, before, before that, I feel like we ran the whole gamut of conversations. We really did. It was so great. Okay. So Ahuba, where can people find you? So I hang out lots on Instagram. My handle is Ahuba Hirschkop. I make it really easy. And then I also run a free community on Facebook called beyond burnout with Ahuba Hirschkop, where we share lots of these you know, daily tips, tricks, and you can find out more about all of the programs that I run. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on and um, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening in guys. Have a great day. Thank you so much for listening today. If you found this information valuable, please share this episode and give it a review. They truly help a ton. 
If you want additional support and information, you can head over to my website, teresemartinezrd.com, where you can snag my free guide on how to improve your hunger signals, get on my email list for regular juicy content, or apply for the next round of my signature program, Restoring Nutrition Intuition. Otherwise, Instagram at Therese Martinez RD or my Facebook group Fed Fit and Fad Free Nutrition with Therese are always places for more content and support. Until next time.